This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 121 of the DeFacto Leaders podcast on the Bee Podcast Network. Today, I have a solo episode for you. I'm going to be talking about your inner voice. So do we all have one? Do we all need one? What does the research say? And how can we use this information to be more effective in our lives as well as support the kids that we are working with? This is something that I have seen debated a bit and I wanted to deepen my understanding of this concept and also clarify how we can use it to support kids who are working on things like self-regulation, planning, language, and other skills that are going to support them in their lives. One of the biggest challenges that I've had as someone who does professional development is 
knowing how much to get into the theory and the definitions and how much to stay practical. So, so this is something that I'm always working on. Today, I'm really focused on the research, some of the definitions, and I will get into a couple practical things. But I do have a more in-depth plan for putting this into practice from an implementation standpoint that is all in the School of Clinical Leadership, my program for related service providers who are working with kids who need support in the areas of academic skills, social emotional, and also the skills that are needed to prepare them for life after school. So if you are in any of those roles and you want to know how you can support students' executive functioning, how you can think about what to do in your therapy sessions when you're directly working with kids, as well as how you can be a leader on your team and utilize other models, such as coaching others, coaching parents, coworkers, advocating to your administrators for resources and time to meet as a team, or just other resources you need to make service delivery more effective, then definitely check out the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. But now I wanted to start the discussion about developing an inner voice. And you'll notice if you do a Google search for, does everybody have an inner voice or internal monologue, you will see a number of articles pop up. A lot of the articles that immediately pop up on a Google search are more um, popular news sites that don't really get into the specifics of the research, but I have found a couple of them that do cite a number of articles, and those articles that are cited are the ones that you really want to be looking at if you want to deepen your understanding. Not the overview, the Cliff's Notes version that you're going to see in the blog articles that you can read in 30 seconds. If you really want to have a solid understanding of this, you do need to look at the sources that they're citing. <laughs> and most importantly, you have to see if they actually are citing sources because a lot of them don't. And that's always a huge red flag for me if uh, if I'm reading an article on something and they're saying, you know, these are the patterns and, and then they're not citing any sources. So with that in mind, if you do a search for this, you will find some different terms that pop up. And as you do some reading in this area, you will find that some of them are defined in different ways. And there are some terms that are synonymous, but some of them do have some slight differences. So you might see things such as inner monologue versus inner dialogue. You might see inner speech versus inner voice versus inner ear or private speech. You might see self-directed talk, self-talk. So those are a number of terms that all are within the same umbrella, but are not all exactly the same. But really what we're talking about here is the use of language skills and the use of some kind of an internal voice to self-regulate and problem solve. Some of the questions that I wanted to ponder today are, is an inner voice important to have? If so, why? Is it something that we can measure? How do we measure it? Does everyone have an inner voice? If not, why not? If they don't, should they try to develop one? If people don't utilize an internal voice and they think that they should have one, what's the best way to do that? 
Should we focus more on compensation or should we focus on building the skills that aren't there? Before I get going, I wanted to share a story that I think is relevant to this debate in a lot of ways, and that is the story of the blind man and the elephant. The Blind Man and the Elephant is a poem by John Godfrey Sachs, and he based the poem on an Indian parable about six blind men observing different parts of the elephant's body. So for example, one man was observing the elephant's leg and said, well, this, this is a tree trunk. One had his hand on the tusk, and he said, it feels like a sphere. The one who was holding the tail said, it's like a rope, and so on. So the point of the parable is that each person was observing a different angle, but they were all looking at the same thing, and they were all arguing because they all had an incomplete picture and not all of the information. And I see this happening a lot with these cognitive constructs that have a lot of overlap and complexity. There's a lot of debate on how do we work on these things? How do we measure these things? And I think it is easy to focus on your area of expertise and feel like that's the most important thing and not necessarily listen to the other people. And I think that if you are in any clinical role, it is important to know your area of expertise. It's important to be able to sell why it's important to other people but we also wanna think about the bigger picture. We don't want to be the person who's focused on one area and ignoring the others. This doesn't mean that your area isn't important, but it does mean that if we want to get support for the area that we are addressing, and if we want to make sure that we are coming up with a solution that is truly helping kids, we do wanna think about those other areas and how they fit into what we're doing. Now I say this because with my background as a speech pathologist, the part of the elephant that I've been looking at is language. So really focusing on the verbal aspect. So if language is one part of the elephant, there are a lot of others that we need to think about. There's sensory, there's attention, there's the visual, the spatial, and all those other broader areas of cognition. And typically, we're, we can't fully isolate these skills when we're working on them or when we're measuring them. So when we think about working on one skill, we have to think about working on another because they're all overlapping and interrelated. So I want you to go into this discussion that I'm about to share with that idea in mind that Yes, we do want to build those language skills. Those are going to impact planning and self-regulation, but we do want to think about how they relate to the adjacent skills and how we want to pair those things together. There may be certain cases where we do want to focus on the linguistic aspects of the task that we're doing, and that might be our entry point or our primary area of focus, but we always want to think about pulling in those other senses and pairing it with the visual and there might be specific cases where it might make sense for the primary thing that we focus on when it comes to problem solving are those visual skills. And then maybe we pair those visual skills with the language. So the visuals are the entry point. So I'll start off by talking about why self-talk is important. So both the theoretical background as well as some things that have been discovered in the peer-reviewed research and I will cite to some articles that you can read that will give you much more detailed information than I'm able to share in one podcast episode. 
It makes sense to start our discussion with Vygotsky and some of his theories on self-talk, why it's important, and its role. So really, he defines self-talk as how we talk to ourselves during cognitive tasks that require a lot of complexity and problem solving. He also theorized that self-talk is a universal feature of development, but that there are some individual differences in the frequency and quality of self-talk. A term that he often used was inner speech and the way that we talk to ourselves for internal planning. And he describes this use of inner speech as something that we use as a tool for enhancing or facilitating other cognitive functions. This would include things like self-regulation, self-awareness, metacognition, so our awareness of our own thinking and our use of strategies, planning, inhibition, as well as understanding of social situations, such as perspective taking, how we are coming across to others, or our reactions to others. So there is peer-reviewed research that supports that inner speech or inner use of language is supportive of all of those skills that I just mentioned, and that any of those things that require linguistic reasoning are going to be enhanced by our use of some kind of internal self-talk. Now, I don't think we can have a discussion about executive functioning and problem solving without getting into working memory. So I wanted to talk about the models of understanding working memory as well. So the basic definition of working memory is our ability to retain information to complete multi-step tasks. So what we have to do is hold information in our minds and then use it for something that we are then going to do. So this could mean that someone tells us a set of directions and then we're going to follow those directions. So let's say that you know someone is giving you directions to drive somewhere, you have to hold that linguistic information and that understanding of those messages in your mind and then hold it in your mind long enough to drive wherever you're going. That would be one example of using working memory to do something in the future. So I have heard people define working memory as your ability to think into the future. I see these things as separate constructs that go together and that impact each other. So we need to be able to hold information in our mind to then go and plan for the things that we're going to go do with that information, but I see them as slightly different things that are highly dependent on each other. When we're talking about working memory, one of the well-known models is the Badley and Hitch model, which defined working memory as having three components. So there's the central executive. So this is the part of working memory that manages your attention. Then you have the phonological loop, which is the aspect of working memory that has to do with acoustic, verbal, and phonological information. So this would be the language aspect. Then we have the visual spatial sketch pad, the aspect that includes the visual and spatial information that we are retaining in our memory. And then later on, they added a fourth component, which is the episodic element, which is the aspect of working memory that helps us to use past information for something that is going on currently. So using past information 
to apply to the current situation that we're in. So thinking about these things, this is why I say things like future planning is related to working memory, but not always exactly the same thing because we can certainly use information that is in the past to apply it to a situation that's in front of us, our ability to hold information in and then plan for something that is currently in front of us is obviously going to be something that impacts our ability to do something that's going on right now. But when we're thinking about long-term planning, you know, a week out from now, long-term, obviously that's going to require some additional processing skills that aren't necessarily exactly the same thing. So because there are so many different skills that are required for planning in the moment, planning for the immediate future, and planning for far into the future, this is why I say that thinking about inner voice and our ability to use it, as well as when it's beneficial to focus on this as our primary strategy, is going to be highly dependent on what we're trying to accomplish what kind of information we're having to process given the task that's in front of us, as well as whether something's happening in the immediate future, like five minutes from now versus something that's happening next week, for example, because there are times when it actually makes more sense to use less linguistic information and use less language. My area of expertise is in building vocabulary and syntax. And if you truly understand how to support vocabulary, you're not just focusing on the acoustic elements, you are focusing on how to pronounce words, but you're also pairing that with multi-sensory information. Now, when I say multi-sensory, I wanna be careful about that because that term is thrown around a lot. It's used in a lot of branding and people don't really define what it means, but when I'm talking about being multi-sensory, I'm talking about pairing the aspects of language. So the acoustic aspects, the cognitive aspects of you know how we say words, how we pronounce words, how they look in print, and pairing that to other information, such as how something feels, how something tastes, how something looks, the context in which we might use that. So you can see there how this is really pairing that auditory aspect or that phonological aspect with the visual aspect. If you truly understand how to support language, you know that you need to pull in that visual information because that's going to support your vocabulary skills. So really those two skills, when we're thinking about the phonological component as well as the visual component, those two things are going to support each other. Even though it does get a bit messy when we're talking about constructs that aren't exactly the same thing, but are related to each other and can support each other, but there are certain people who might have one skill that is much stronger than the other. One of the reasons that using language as a tool for planning can be so powerful and can be so effective for many people is because when they're using that language, they immediately associate other senses with it. They associate how it looks, how it feels, how that experience feels. So they're not just using verbal information, they're also using other information to plan. And so we can't necessarily use only our language skills to plan. We have to pull in those other skills. One of the reasons that having an inner voice or using some kind of inner dialogue or inner monologue 
one of the reasons why that has been an effective strategy for things like self-regulation and planning is when it's used as a rehearsal tool for enhancing working memory. So this is like when somebody says directions to you and then you're repeating them back to yourself so that you're able to remember. So you're using that language to help you rehearse and recall that information that you're trying to hold in your mind. So this can be a particularly helpful strategy if whatever you're doing requires you to process linguistic information, such as verbal or written directions. One of the things that research has consistently shown is that when we're giving additional linguistic information, when we're trying to remember and hold other linguistic information in our minds, that it becomes much harder to retain that and use it. So what that tells us is that if there are things distracting us after we've been given a message, then it's likely that it's going to be more difficult for us to remember and recall that information. So this just goes back to the idea that if you have someone who needs support in the area of working memory, that having an environment that is highly distracting can make it much more difficult for them to carry out the task, which is something that I think most of us are aware of. I think the thing to remember here is that it's not just about the environment that we're in when we get the information, it's the environment that we're in when we have to carry out the task. You give someone verbal directions in an environment that's not distracting, but then they have to go use that information. And while they're carrying out the task, you're throwing additional incoming information or distractions, whether it's verbal or, or things that can be observed through our other senses, that that's also going to have an impact. So it's not just about the environment where we're giving the information, it's about the environment when we're having to use the information. And all of that is going to impact someone's ability to use their inner voice. So the other thing to consider that has been addressed in the research as well is that sometimes there is information that we're giving that requires us to process visual information. And some people do use verbal information to plan when there is some kind of a task that requires them to think about something or envision something visually and our ability to use language effectively to plan when something is visual is highly dependent on our ability to phonologically encode. So that just means that we have to be able to pair that word and those that language with those visuals Otherwise, we're not going to be able to use it to plan and execute on something that requires us to use visual information. So here is where we might want to consider in certain situations for certain people whether or not we want to make our strategies that we're teaching them more linguistic or more visual. Perfect example is the use of visual schedules. Some people can look at a list of things that they have to do today, if they're able to look at those, those things on the list, look at those words and immediately make meaning from them and to be able to visualize those things, or if they're able to take the visual information in their mind and turn it into a list that they can then use, well, that strategy is going to be very effective for them. But if they're not able to do that efficiently, it might make more sense to start with a strategy that is more visual for someone. So 
if we have someone using a schedule or a checklist and they're having a hard time pairing the visual with the verbal, you might want to use more pictures rather than just using the language. If someone is in a situation where they are going to need to be more reliant on something that is more of a linguistic task, we want to make sure that we build the language skills and the vocabulary that they need to be able to do that visualization and pair the visual with the verbal more efficiently. And that's part of the work that I do with building vocabulary. Now, language skills can be very powerful, but there are a lot of situations where language is not enough for you to be successful. Sometimes we do need to rely more on our visual spatial information and other senses. The research shows that there are certain tasks that we can plan for verbally to some extent, but then in order to be successful with them, we have to go and experience the task and utilize other cognitive skills in addition to our language skills in order to be successful. A perfect example that comes to mind is if you've ever watched a youth soccer game and you've watched the coaches from the sidelines yelling directions at their players and the players not listening to them for whatever reason, probably for a lot of reasons that relate to a lot of the things that I'm talking about today. You can see how it's not just about language. Sometimes in a situation like that, you need to be able to process what's going on visually. You have to execute on certain motor tasks. And so you can't necessarily rely on language and you won't necessarily use language to make decisions on the spot. You have to be very dependent on your visual spatial skills. And in many cases, you're probably going to be paying more attention to those aspects than you are words. So in a situation like that, it doesn't necessarily always require you to be using language to process every single step that you're taking. Now, some people may utilize an inner voice for things like motivation, to talk themselves through feelings of anxiety. But when you're thinking about certain aspects of problem solving during a task like that, it's going to be more visual than it is going to be linguistic. I love the soccer example because sometimes when you are playing a sport, it's actually very hard to put some of those things into words. Sometimes it's counterproductive and it makes more sense for people to watch what you're doing and look at that visual information and try to hold that in their minds and use that to make decisions and to plan and react. So it's not just about the language. Sometimes it might be counterproductive to use too much language in a situation like that. Now, with that all being said, it is highly beneficial for you to have solid language skills if you are going to be participating in a sport, even though it's not enough for you to be fully successful with that sport or really any extracurricular. But the more skills you have, the more flexible you can be in various situations. So that's why learning language is always something that is going to be an asset to you, even though it is possible to be successful using different modes of communication. And what happens with inner voice is that some people are able to use their internal language if they are able to phonologically encode that visual information. They're able to use that as an additional strategy that they can use for planning and self-regulation. Now, there are certain tasks that are very linguistic. And in those situations, 
it does benefit you to be able to utilize an inner voice. So for example, reading and writing, those are highly linguistic tasks. So your ability to use your inner voice is going to be very beneficial during those tasks. For reading, you have to be able to make sense of the language on the page and then take that information and translate that to a visual picture in your mind and think about all of that other sensory information that you know about those words. So you're starting with the language and then you're pulling the visual and other senses in to be able to create that picture in your mind. So we do start with that verbal reasoning. And then as you're reading, you wanna be asking yourself specific questions and engaging in some kind of internal dialogue to check your comprehension of individual words, sentences, and then the, the big picture of the paragraphs that you're reading. So a high amount of linguistic reasoning is going to be beneficial for reading. And then when we're writing, we're doing it in reverse. So we're taking our information and we're having to put it into words. And so we obviously have to think about the language that we're using if we're going to come up with the overall high level organization of the paragraph. We have to be able to talk ourselves through the steps that we're taking when we're writing. And then we have to use that to plan the, the outline of what we're writing. And then we also within that outline have to think about the individual words and sentences. So we do have to specifically talk to ourselves and think about what language we're using. In that particular situation, there is an element of visual imagery, but we also have to think about the language. And if we don't have those language skills, it is going to be very difficult to carry out those tasks. So anything that requires that linguistic reasoning is going to be really important. Now, with things like long-term planning, when you're using planning and checklists or other tools that might require you to be able to have a sense of time and think about how long things will take and to be able to kind of visualize an entire week and how that might look in your calendar. You do have to use a combined approach where you are thinking about some kind of a visual strategy to show you the different time blocks in your day or in your week or even in the next hour. But then if you're going to take that and use a sophisticated planning process so that you can be prepared for a job one day, adulthood, to be able to self-regulate, you do want to pair that with language because if we're going to be able to adapt, we have to be able to use those planning tools that are very language-based perfect example, something like a checklist. Again, when we're starting off with kids, we want to make sure that we are using visuals initially, but then as we're using that, we want to make sure that we are teaching skills, the language that goes along with those visuals so that they can be more flexible in the tools that they're able to use. Now, the next question becomes, does everybody have an inner voice? Does everyone need one? If there are other ways that we can move through our day, is this something that is absolutely necessary for everyone? So the first question that we want to ask is, how do we even measure this? And this is where things get a bit messy. Um, I can tell you just from being online in different discussion groups, there are a lot of people who claim that they don't have an inner voice. So the question becomes, do they have an inner voice? Do they have one and not realize it because it's so automatic to them? Or are they using other information 
in addition to language in order to process and plan. So what's really going on here? I will tell you a lot of times people will cite statistics like, you know, this percentage of people don't have an inner voice. And my response to that is usually, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know where you got that information. And that's why I wanted to do some digging into the research on my own, because a lot of times when people cite statistics and then they can't tell you where they got that statistic from, that makes me skeptical. So with that being said, one of the most common ways that inner voice and inner language has been assessed is through self-report. So things like surveys and rating scales, interviews, and the positive aspect of doing research this way is that it doesn't require detailed instrumentation. It doesn't require medical equipment. It's something that is accessible to a lot of researchers. But the downsides of using self-report are that we have to rely on people's report of their own experience, which means that we are operating under the assumption that people are accurately able to explain their past behaviors, which we know isn't always the case. So there's obviously some issues with construct validity here, not that people are deliberately lying, but because of a number of issues with complexity. Some of these things are very difficult to measure, so they're very difficult to explain. So even if people have very good intentions and want to be accurate reporters, it's just very difficult to explain something like this. And then, you know, there are aspects of cognitive distortions where we might think one thing, but we're biased. Everybody experiences bias. So that's always going to come out in self-report. And again, this is nothing that's malicious. It's just basic human nature. So some people may not be aware of the internal language that they're using. You have to have pretty sophisticated language to be able to explain your use of language. So if language is a challenge for someone and then you are asking them to participate in a study that requires processing and using a lot of linguistic information, participating in that study is going to be more difficult for them. The other thing that happens with self-report is just that everybody misremembers things. It's just, it's just very common. So if you're not specifically paying attention to how often you do something, it's very difficult to remember how often you do it. One example that I've seen in a completely different field is people who do health coaching. A lot of times they're asking people about their, their sleep hygiene habits, their, their dietary decisions. And so people might be able to recall what they ate for lunch yesterday, but when you're asking them about long-term patterns, it is hard to remember what you've done over time, unless you're explicitly paying attention to something. And things like food are a little bit more tangible, but things like inner voice are much harder to remember and explain. So even with basic things like how we eat, how we sleep, sometimes that's very hard to explain and people don't necessarily always report their past behaviors accurately. So it becomes even more difficult when it comes to things that are internal processes that we're not always aware of or that we're not explicitly thinking about. So when you use self-report, a lot of times you are just surveying people about their past behavior and they're, you're just asking them to remember, you know, what have you done the last couple months, for example? But there is a method called sampling where you are asking people to measure their behavior 
at given points in time. So how this might look is that they are given some kind of a cue and then they have to, in the moment, report what they're doing in that particular moment. So for example, they might have some kind of a device that beeps at them and then they have to report if they're engaging in some kind of internal monologue or dialogue when that beep comes up. So it tends to be a little bit more accurate than asking people to just remember what they've done over a long period of time, but we are still talking about humans, so it's not perfect, but it is another method that has been used to study things like internal voice. And then finally, there are studies that have been done with use of imaging, such as MRIs. So even with MRIs, we do have to rely on some aspect of self-report because if we are giving people instructions, such as you know giving them directions about ways that they can be talking to themselves while they are undergoing imaging, we have to rely on them accurately being able to do that and being able to follow those directions and indicating when they are or are not engaging in some kind of internal dialogue. So none of these methods are perfect. We obviously need to keep doing research and utilizing these methods, but we do have to realize that there are limitations to any methodology and we have to keep studying these things because they are very difficult to assess. This is why it's very difficult to definitively say 50% of people don't engage in an internal monologue, for example. A more accurate way to describe what's going on is to reference a specific study and report what happened in that particular study or in that particular group of people. For example, saying something like 30% of the participants in this study reported that they don't engage in internal self-talk. That would be a more accurate way to describe what's going on because it references a specific study rather than making a broad generalization to the entire population, which is not what we want to do when we're interpreting research. Now, what I've done in this particular episode is I have reported patterns across multiple studies, but I haven't cited specific statistics because I only will do that if I'm citing a specific source and mentioning that source right away. The language that I use when I'm describing a group of studies versus one specific study with a statistic is very different. And so the devil is in the details when you're explaining these types of things. And I think it's really important because we are in a position where we can educate the general public. So we wanna be careful about the way that we explain statistics and be careful about making those broad generalizations versus citing patterns and then leaking to the specific evidence. So I will be citing some of the articles and studies that I'm mentioning because a lot of the sources have descriptions of multiple studies and a number of different research articles that you can look at. I'll wrap up by talking about what do we do if we have people with neurological differences? How do blind people use visual imagery, for example? What about deaf people who aren't able to hear and access auditory information. And then of course, what about people who have some kind of a diagnosis like autism, ADHD, developmental language delay, or something else that might impact your ability to use language and may impact you cognitively. What I am going to do is I'm going to table the discussion on the low vision and blindness as well as hard of hearing and deaf because I want to give those 
a full episode if I'm going to address those topics, but I will address the topic of of thinking about inner voice and neurodiversity. With autism, there are some studies that show that autistic people are less likely to use inner speech, but then there are others that show that they can use inner speech, especially when they are taught to use it and that it can be beneficial for them in specific tasks that require them to use a lot of linguistic information. There are some studies that show that autistic people or people with a diagnosis such as ADHD or developmental language delay don't engage in as much inner language and inner dialogue as other people, but they can build these skills if they're taught explicitly. And then there are other studies that show that they can and do engage in internal dialogue. So the findings are mixed, but we do know that Pairing language with visual information and teaching strategies is going to be very important for anyone who is not engaging in internal language. One thing that did pop up that I thought was very interesting was that using an internal dialogue versus an internal monologue is an important distinction. So when you're engaging in an internal dialogue, you're thinking about both perspectives and kind of engaging in this internal conversation, but an internal monologue is more of a one-way conversation. So one of the suggestions in one of the articles that I was reading was that it's possible that autistic people, for example, might use more of an internal monologue when they're self-regulating using language, and that there could be certain situations where it's beneficial for them to engage in in more of a dialogue, specifically when it has to do with, you know, any situation that requires them to take perspectives of others, such as very linguistic-based tasks, tasks that require them to engage socially. So it might not be necessary for us to engage in a dialogue during every particular task, but any situation where it requires us to think about other people and think about other perspectives, it could be beneficial to teach these skills. So as I've said before, it's not that we only want to use language for planning and regulation, but having the ability to access these skills when we want to use them, or just having the knowledge and ability that these are options that we could pull out should we choose to use them, does give someone much more flexibility. So. When I am teaching strategies, including when it comes to teaching strategies for internal self-talk or dialogue, I am never going to tell someone that they have to use a certain strategy all of the time or any of the time, but I will share the benefits and help them to discern when they can use it and when it could be beneficial. And I think that it's very important for us as practitioners to understand these nuances and to know that When we are teaching people strategies, we are just giving them more options. We're not telling them that they have to do anything. We can still give them that choice, but the more options they have, the more flexibility that they have. I always come at this from more of a growth mindset perspective, but if 
I know that they have a tendency towards one particular skill and they have something that they're very good at already because they've practiced it a lot. Of course, we're going to leverage that. Of course, we're going to celebrate the skills that they already have. But at the same time, I am going to think about how they can diversify the tools in their toolbox. Really what we're doing here is that we're giving people as many options as possible and helping them understand when it's beneficial to use them, when it's necessary to use them, so that we can help them be more flexible and adaptable in varying situations. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all the information to some of the research articles and sources that I used to produce this episode. Also, if you are a related service provider, especially if you're working in the school systems and you want to give your students some strategies for improving things like self-talk, self-regulation, as well as how to pair visuals with language so that they are able to use a diverse range of strategies in order to plan, self-regulate, and complete complex tasks and problem solving, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership. I'll also share some much needed clarity around complex topics like the one I discussed today. To learn more about how to become a member, go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. If you have a suggestion for a guest or if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. The DeFacto Leaders Podcast is part of the B Podcast Network for Educators, where there are all kinds of podcasts that will help you to be a better leader when it comes to education and supporting students. So it's possible that if you're a guest on DeFacto Leaders, you might get some additional airtime in some of the other podcast feeds on the network. So to learn more about the B Podcast Network, go to bpodcastnetwork.com. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. 
If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.